Okay, let's begin with the basics. Wonder Woman is an awesome film. I saw it on opening night with my wife. As a DC Comics fan, Wonder Woman has become one of their three most iconic characters, along with Batman and Superman. She's a driving force in their universe, as she should be. The film does an excellent job of laying out her origin story, and it beautifully balances the feminist underpinnings of her character. She comes from a society in which men are disdained and is eminently more powerful than any man she comes across in the non-Themescara world with obvious femininity. She's a true heroine in the film. She fights for the innocent. She's willing to kill in order to do so. She is far harder core than Batman, for example. She's a feminist for certain. She scoffs at the notion of a secretary as a sort of modern form of slavery. At the same time, she goes out of her way to coo at babies. Yes, feminists, women like babies. And she falls head over heels for a heroic man, despite her own statements about men being unnecessary for pleasure. Early in the film, she tut-tuts the notion of marriage, as does he. By the end of the film, they're both on board. Plus, she's played by the wonderful Gal Gadot, a two-time mother who is pregnant during filming and just happens to be Israeli. She also served in the Israeli Defense Force for two years. All of this makes her character unpalatable to hardcore feminists, who base feminism not not on equality of rights, but on abortion and man-hating and forceful opposition to Western standards of beauty. Here's Christina Cauterici at Slate, quote, To me, whatever chance Wonder Woman had of being some kind of feminist antidote to the overabundance of superhero movies made by and for bros was blown by its prevailing occupation with a titular heroine's sex appeal. Cauterici even implies that Chris Pine's character quasi-rapes Diana because, quote, her capacity for consent is somewhat blurry, her never having met a man and all. Here's dude feminist Stephen Rose at The Guardian, quote, The film feels obligated to give Pine his own equally heroic story arc. Men might be unnecessary for pleasure, but they're still essential for big-budget action movies, it seems. Plus, Wonder Woman fights against the Germans in World War I. This makes her an emissary of American militarism. On Tuesday, Josephine Livingstone wrote at the New Republic, quote, Wonder Woman has no use for global history except as grist for American exceptionalism. Oh, no, we mustn't teach the young ones about the fact that the United States saved Europe from fascism. Twice, that would be terrible. Most feminists seem pretty enthused about the movie overall. It should be said. But the fact that many are not should show how out of touch the radical feminist movement has become. The film is great for teenage girls, and while it's clearly a fantasy, nobody, man or woman, could rush through bullets of World War I in the way Wonder Woman does, but it's men who typically do the fighting in war, and for rational reasons, it does demonstrate that strong women need not be anti-baby or anti-male. One of the reasons the movie went over so big is that its brand of feminism is taken for granted in the West. Sexism is no longer a major issue in American society. It's hard to imagine anyone seriously objecting to a fantasy female character fighting baddies while kissing babies and falling in love with a strong male character in traditional fashion. That's what feminism should be, but not according to the more militant feminists, which is why they're so mad, for no reason at all. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Okay, so lots to get to today. We're going to get to everything Comey-related in just a second. But first, I want to say thank you to our friends over at Lyft. So it's not just for people who are looking for a ride anymore. Now they're looking for drivers because so many people are riding Lyft that they actually have a shortage of people who can drive. And so they're asking you to join the ride-sharing company that believes in treating its people better. When you drive for the right ride-sharing app, Every trip feels great. And with Lyft, you can pick your own hours. You can work when you want. There's tipping in the app, so you get paid better. When you drive for Lyft, you keep 100% of the tips. Drivers have been paid over $150 million in tips since this feature was introduced. Express Pay means the drivers get paid almost instantly instead of waiting for weeks for a check to come in the mail. And right now, they've even taken the guesswork out of pickups. They have an AMP device that uses color coding to help passengers find their drivers. You can earn hundreds of, million, hundreds of dollars a week plus tips. If you want to make more money, drive more. It's never been easier to give yourself a raise. So 
Go use Lyft. My wife uses Lyft. I use Lyft. It's the only ride-sharing app that we use. And I know the drivers seem happier. The drivers are always very friendly. They're always really good. And you can be one of those drivers earning really good money if you go to lyft.com slash Shapiro today. And right now, if you do that, if you go to lyft.com slash Shapiro today, you can get a $500 new driver bonus right off the bat. That's lyft.com slash Shapiro, lyft.com slash Shapiro, L-Y-F-T dot com slash Shapiro. It's a limited time only Terms apply. Again, use Shapiro so that you know that we sent you, and also because that means you'll get that $500 new driver bonus. Okay, tons to get to today with regard to the Comey hearing. So I will get to what exactly Comey said in the hearing that is relevant and interesting, but first I want to go through the part that actually is most important, and that is the seven-page piece of testimony that he released yesterday. So yesterday he releases text of testimony that he wanted admitted into the congressional record, what he says happened between him and President Trump. Now, in order to understand this, what you have to understand first and foremost is that the Democratic narrative going into this entire Comey hearing is that President Trump colluded with Russia during the 2016 election in order to swing the election to himself, and then he fired Comey in an attempt to cut it up, to cover it up. That was the entire narrative. The narrative was that, okay? It wasn't just Trump acted badly. It wasn't just Trump obstructed justice about unrelated matters. It was that Trump was in bed with the Russians, and then in order to cover it up, he fired James Comey in order to obstruct the investigation. That was the case Democrats were making. And the reason they were making this case is because they didn't want it to seem like Hillary Clinton legitimately lost the election. They wanted it to seem like Hillary actually won the election, if not for Trump moving with Putin in concert. And therefore, he had to move with Putin in concert. They, they were colluding together. The election was rigged, and then Trump fired Comey to prevent all of that from coming out. That was their narrative. So yesterday, James Comey releases this seven-page document, and it totally destroys that narrative. It totally destroys that narrative. So the right is pointing out that it totally destroyed that narrative. On the other hand, it also points out that President Trump is wildly in over his head when it comes to dealing with his own people, that he acted really badly with regard to James Comey, the FBI director, on a variety of matters in ways that would tick us off if we were on the left. It would tick us off, and I'll explain how we know that in just a second. But first, I think it's important to go through the actual documents. So we're now going to go through the text of the opening statement that Comey gave on Thursday. Okay, so today he was supposed to give it. He didn't actually read it into the record. He didn't have to. It had already been read by everybody in America. So he started in this document by describing his first meeting with then-President-elect Trump on January 6th at Trump Tower at which he personally briefed Trump about an intelligence community assessment concerning Russian interference in the 2016 election. This is this famed BuzzFeed dossier that was supposed to have the P-tapes in it and all of this. So Comey comes to the White House, or rather to Trump Tower, and he tells Trump about this dossier. He says he briefed Trump on the details himself alone out of respect for Trump's privacy. Comey explained he was worried that the briefing might might lead Trump to believe that the FBI was investigating him, so he wanted to assure Trump that Trump was not being personally investigated. Now... As you recall, when Trump fired Comey, he had in his letter that Comey had said he was not being personally investigated three times. That was true. Comey says that in this document. Comey told Trump over and over and over again he was not being personally investigated. So that part is actually true in what Trump had to say. Okay, so this confirms Trump's account. Then, according to Comey, he spoke with Trump one-on-one nine separate times in four months, three in person, six on the phone. The next meeting that Comey discusses in detail is that January 27th dinner. You remember, Trump went on national TV. He said that Comey basically came in and begged for his job. And then there were reports that Trump had asked Comey for a loyalty oath. He wanted Trump, he, Trump wanted Comey to pledge his loyalty to Trump. Here is Comey's account, quote, It turned out to be just the two of us seated at a small oval table in the center of the green room. 
Two Navy stewards waited on us, only entering the room to serve food and drinks. The president began by asking me whether I wanted to stay on as FBI director, which I found strange because he had already told me twice in earlier conversations that he hoped I would stay, and I had assured him that I intended to. He said that lots of people wanted my job, and given the abuse I had taken during the previous year, he would understand if I wanted to walk away. My instincts told me that the one-on-one setting and the pretense that this was our first discussion about my position meant the dinner was, at least in part, an effort to have me ask for my job and create some sort of patronage relationship. This concerned me greatly, given the FBI's traditionally independent status in the executive branch. Okay, so this is the part where Trump gets into dicey territory. So on January 27th, he meets with Comey, and he says to him, you really love your job, don't you? It would be a pity if that job went away, wouldn't it? And Comey took that as, you're basically asking me to do something for you. The president said, quote, I need loyalty, I expect loyalty. I didn't move, speak, or change my facial expression in any way during the awkward silence that followed. We simply looked at each other in silence. The conversation then moved on, but he returned to the subject near the end of our dinner. At one point, I explained why it was so important that the FBI and the Department of Justice be independent of the White House. I said it was a paradox. Throughout history, some presidents have decided that because problems come from justice, they should try to hold the department close, but blurring those boundaries ultimately makes the problem worse. Near the end of our dinner, the president returned to the subject of my job. He then said, I need loyalty. I replied, you will always get honesty from me. He paused and then said, that's what I want, honest loyalty. I paused and then said, you will get that from me. As I wrote in the memo I created immediately after the dinner, it is possible we understood the phrase honest loyalty differently, but I decided it wouldn't be productive to push it further. So this is obviously not good for Trump, right? It looks like there's some sort of quid pro quo here. He wants Comey's loyalty in exchange for Comey staying on the job. Okay, next meeting Comey discusses, and we're just going to go through Comey's testimony, and then we're going to talk about what it means. Comey moves on to his February 14th counterterrorism briefing of Trump. This is the one where Trump apparently shoes everybody out of the room. He shoes Attorney General Sessions out of the room. He shoes Rod Rosenstein out of the room. He shoes out the NSA Rogers. He shoes out the DNI. He shoes out everybody. And then he talks to Flynn, he talks to Comey one-on-one. And here's Comey's document. He says, Trump repeated that Flynn hadn't done anything wrong on his calls with the Russians, but he had misled the vice president. He then said, I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go, to letting Flynn go. He is a good guy. I hope you can let this go. I replied only that he is a good guy. He said, I did not say I would let this go. The president returned briefly to the problem of leaks. Goes on, and then he says, I immediately prepared an unclassified memo of the conversation about Flynn and discussed the matter with FBI senior leadership. I had understood the president to be requesting that we drop any investigation of Flynn in connection with false statements about his conversations with the Russian ambassador in December. I did not understand the president to be talking about the broader investigation into Russia or possible links to his campaign. In other words, the Democratic narrative that Trump was trying to fire Comey or pressure Comey to stop the Russian investigation altogether, just not true, even according to Comey. That's Comey's testimony. So Comey says he wanted him to stop talking about Flynn generally. He wanted him to stop investigating Flynn over his Russian phone calls in December, but nothing to do with the campaign. So the press is trying to say that, again, this is a cover-up, it's obstruction of justice, but the question is what exactly is being obstructed? So if you want to say that there is some sort of pressure going on with regard to Flynn and the December phone calls, which, again, there's no underlying evidence that anything wrong happened in those phone calls, but if you want to say that Trump was upset with those in the investigation of those phone calls and he was pressuring Comey, that seems fair. But the media were not making that case. The media were making the far different and more and more brutal case, basically, that President Trump was trying to shut down the entirety of the Trump-Russia investigation by pressuring Comey. 
This means there is still no evidence that Trump cares about quashing an investigation into campaign collusion, according to Comey. The conversation was not reported to Attorney General Jeff Sessions, Comey says, because Sessions was about to recuse himself. And then he says, quote, the investigation moved ahead at full speed. So again, Trump may have pressured Comey, but Comey obviously didn't take it sitting down and didn't just stop investigating. Shortly thereafter, according to Comey, he asked Sessions to provide a barrier between Comey and Trump. He said, I told the AG that what had happened, him being asked to leave while the FBI director who reports to the AG remained behind, was inappropriate and should never happen. He did not reply. And then he said, I did not talk about the General Flynn stuff. Okay, next. Comey talks about a March 30th phone call. Here is his description, quote, On the morning of March 30th, the president called me at the FBI. He described the Russia investigation as a, quote, cloud that was impairing his ability to act on behalf of the country. He said he had nothing to do with Russia, had not been involved with hookers in Russia, and had always assumed he was being recorded when in Russia. He asked what we could do to lift the cloud. I responded we were investigating the matter as quickly as we could and that there would be great benefit if we didn't find anything to our having done the work well. He agreed, but then re-emphasized the problems that this, was that this was causing him. Now, here is the key. So that in and of itself sounds damning, right? It sounds like Trump wants Comey to lift the cloud by killing the Russia investigation. But that's not what Comey goes on to say. What Comey goes on to say is, quote, The president went on to say that if there were some satellite associates of his who did something wrong, it would be good to find that out, but that he hadn't done anything wrong and hoped I would find a way to get it out that we were not investigating him. He finished by stressing the cloud that was interfering with his ability to make deals for the country. So... This has been my theory since May, and I was right all along. My theory since Comey was fired was very, very simple. President Trump wanted Comey to come out and publicly say that President Trump himself was not guilty of anything or under investigation. Comey wouldn't do it. The reason that Comey said he wouldn't do it is he was afraid that in the course of the bigger investigation, Trump's name would come out and then he would have to correct himself the same way he did with Hillary Clinton back in 2016, so better to say nothing right now than to come out and say Trump's not under investigation and then come out later and say Trump is under investigation. Okay, that being the case, that means that Trump was not firing Comey because he wanted Comey to stop the investigation into Trump. He was firing Comey because he was just mad that Comey wouldn't come out and say publicly what Comey had already told him privately, which is that Trump was not personally under investigation. I theorized that all the way back on May 10th. That is exactly correct. That is exactly correct. Okay, so again, is this Trump behaving well? No, it's not Trump behaving well, okay? And, and, but is it also, does it, does it jibe with the left's narrative that Trump was colluding with Russia and then fired Comey to cover it up? No, that does not jibe in any way. There's no evidence of collusion. That entire narrative is destroyed by James Comey. Okay, finally, Comey turns to a phone call that took place on April 11th. Here is what he says, quote, Trump replied that the cloud was getting in the, way, in the way of his ability to do his job. He said perhaps he would have his people reach out to the acting deputy attorney general. I said that was the way his request should be handled. I said the White House should contact the leadership of the DOJ. He said he would do that and added, because I have been very loyal to you, very loyal, we had that thing you know. I did not ask him or reply what he meant by that thing. I said only that the way to handle it was to have the White House counsel call the acting deputy attorney general. Okay, again, the conversation about that thing sounds dirty. It sounds like Trump is trying to get something out of Comey in exchange for something else, right? That is the thing that they have. Okay, and one of the speculations is that Trump had mentioned deputy FBI director Andrew McCabe and Trump retaining him, even though McCabe has links to Democrats, as sort of a favor to Comey and then Comey treating him nice because he was nice to Comey by keep it, allowing him to keep his job and keeping McCabe in his job. But again... 
There is no actual evidence of collusion between Trump and Russia. And once again, there is no evidence that Trump was trying to quash the investigation into Trump. What Trump wanted out of this whole thing was something very simple. He wanted Comey to come out publicly and say what he had said privately, which is that Trump was not personally under investigation. That is the entirety of this whole thing. Trump fired him because he wouldn't do it. He fired him because he wouldn't do it. Now, that is the issue with regard to Trump-Russia. And that's why the right today is chortling. And they're saying, okay, you guys have been making the case for half a year now about the Trump-Russia collusion, and you were saying that Trump is at fault for trying to fire Comey as a, some sort of giant cover-up or something. Okay, you say all of that, but then there's no actual evidence of any of that, so Comey just destroyed you. Now, here is what the left is saying. What the left is saying is, we know that Trump basically quasi-offered Comey a quid pro quo. He put pressure on him. He, he mentioned his job. He was putting pressure on him to, to leave the Flynn investigation alone. He was doing all of these things. And if Obama had done all this, you would be really, really ticked off. They're not wrong about this, okay? If Obama had done this, we would be really ticked off. How do I know? Because today, Comey, in his actual testimony, said that Loretta Lynch told James Comey that she didn't want the Hillary investigation referred to as an investigation. She wanted it referred to as a matter. And Comey said that created the appearance of impropriety between Loretta Lynch and Hillary Clinton's campaign. It certainly did, right? All of us on the right were livid about the fact that Loretta Lynch met with Bill Clinton on the tarmac and they talked about the Hillary investigation. We were all livid. We said this creates impropriety. It does create impropriety, just like it creates impropriety for President Trump to meet with the acting FBI director, James Comey, and tell him he wants a Flynn investigation drop, or I hope the Flynn investigation will be dropped. Now, is that obstruction of justice? No, it's not technically obstruction of justice because, again, there was no actual threat to Comey that if you don't drop this, I'm going to do X, and it was not an actual, you know, real attempt to get Flynn to, to, to get Comey to stop investigating Flynn. It was more like, I hope you stop that. So there are two ways to read that, right? One is, I really hope you stop that. It would be a terrible thing if something bad were to happen to your children. And the other way to read that is, I hope you can stop this because it's really, you know, a pain in the butt for me and for Flynn. Two ways to read that. You know, again, it is not impossible to read it in the most innocuous way, but it is a little bit strange. If you're a Democrat and you're watching this, you're saying, okay, Donald Trump is obviously doing dirty things. If you are a Republican watching this, you're saying it's not so obvious that Trump is doing terrible obstruction of justice things, but he's acting inappropriately for president of the United States. Now, I want to talk about what actually got said during the hearing and how the media is going to shift the narrative from its original narrative in just a second. But first, I want to say thank you to our advertisers over at Mack Weldon. So, Mack Weldon is better than whatever you are wearing right now. Mack Weldon makes underwear. Uh, they make shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which eliminate odor. Uh, they make socks and hoodies and sweatpants. It is the most comfortable stuff you are ever going to wear. They believe in smart design, premium fabrics, simple shopping. You know, if you go to Mack Weldon, you check out their gear. Very easy to shop there. Very simple to shop there. And I can tell you, you know, I wear their underwear and the, the underwear really hold up. I mean, you, you wash other brands of underwear 10 times and they're already falling apart. I've worn my Mack Weldon underwear just a thousand times at this point, and they are pretty much exactly the same as when I bought them. Super duper comfortable. All of their gear looks fantastic. You can wear it out. You can wear it in. It performs well. It's great for working out. It's great for going out. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off when you use the promo code Shapiro, S-H-A-P-I-R-O. That's Shapiro, S-H-A-P-I-R-O. Go to MacWeldon.com, M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Get 20% off using that promo code Shapiro and know, let them know that you use the promo code Shapiro, obviously, so that they know that we sent you and also so that you can get that 20% off best underwear in the world. I mean, really, it doesn't get better than Mack Weldon stuff. Okay, so 
Here is how the, so that, that is what Comey released in his seven pages of testimony. It explodes the Democrat narratives that Trump was pressuring Comey to drop the Trump-Russia investigation, and it explodes the Democrat narrative that there was something deeply nefarious going on with regard to, with regard to Trump being under personal investigation. Trump is not under personal investigation. Comey came out, he said, when he left today, he said Comey was not under, that, that Trump was not under personal investigation. Now, all of that said, here is some of what Comey had to say today. So Comey came out and he didn't read the seven-page statement that had already been entered into, into testimony. So instead, he came out with this very short statement where he ripped Trump basically for firing him. And here's what he had to say. It's clip 13. The administration then chose to defame me and more importantly, the FBI, by saying that the organization was in disarray, that it was poorly led, that the workforce had lost confidence in its leader. Those were lies, plain and simple. Okay, so you know, there he is saying that basically Trump is a liar and he lies about things all the time. He's a big, big, big fat liar. Okay, so I think objectively speaking, Trump fibs a lot, but this is really more about Comey's ego, right? So this is him saying, well, he was mean to me. He was mean to the FBI. He says the FBI is in disarray and that's really terrible. It's a lie about me. I do my job. The FBI does its job and that's really terrible. This is going to be the headline the media gloms onto is that Trump is a liar. And Comey reiterates that Trump is a liar in clip 14. Again, this is all opinion type stuff, but the media, which is now trying to build Comey up as some sort of great truth teller again, they're going to leap on this to say that Trump is just a liar in total. This is clip 14. I want to go through a number of the meetings that you referenced in your testimony. And let's start with the January 6th meeting in Trump Tower, where you went up with a series of officials to brief the president-elect on the Russia investigation. My understanding is you remained afterwards to brief him on, again, quote, some personally sensitive aspects of the information you relayed. Now, you said after that briefing, you felt compelled to document that conversation that you actually started documenting it as soon as you got into the car. Now, you've had extensive experience at the Department of Justice and at the FBI. You've worked under presidents of both parties. What was it about that meeting that led you to determine that you needed to start putting down a written record? A combination of things. I think the circumstances, the subject matter, and the person I was interacting with. Circumstances first, I was alone with the President of the United States, or the President-elect, soon to be President. The subject matter, I was talking about matters that touch on the FBI's core responsibility and that relate to the President, President-elect personally, and then the nature of the person. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting, and so I thought it really important to document. That combination of things I'd never experienced before, but it led me to believe I got to write it down, and I got to write it down in a very detailed way. Okay, so there is James Comey explaining that he thought that Trump's a big liar, so we have to keep all of the uh, that we have to keep all of these notes, and that's his explanation. So the media is jumping on the idea that Comey thought Trump was a liar. Who cares whether Comey thought Trump was a liar? Like he kept these notes, and then Trump either lied or he didn't. So the media is jumping on conclusions without looking at the underlying evidence as usual. I thought Marco Rubio actually asked one of the better questions of the hearing thus far. He said, it's kind of amazing that all of this material has leaked about Trump from the intelligence community, from the Senate committee, but there's one piece of information that never leaked about Trump, and that is Trump was not under personal investigation, just as Trump said that he was, and here's Marco Rubio making that point. We've learned more from the newspapers sometimes than we do from our open hearings, for sure. Um, 
You ever wonder why, of all the things in this investigation, the only thing that's never been leaked is the fact that the president was not personally under investigation, despite the fact that both Democrats and Republicans and the leadership of Congress knew that and have known that for weeks? I don't know. I find matters that are briefed to the Gang of Eight uh, are pretty tightly held, in my experience. Okay, so again, I think that Rubio making this point is the right one. It just demonstrates that when it comes to these leaks and it comes to the media, this is a motivated attempt to destroy President Trump. Okay, I want to talk about how the left is going to pivot off of their original narrative in just a second, right? Their original narrative, again, was that it was Trump-Russia collusion. They did all of this to save Hillary, of course, that it was Trump-Russia collusion, and that's why Hillary lost the election, and that's why Trump attempted to fire James Comey. It was all as a cover-up. Comey totally destroys that entire narrative. He explodes the entire narrative. But he comes out and he says he thinks Trump is a liar and a bad guy. Okay, whatever. But we'll talk about how the left is going to pivot to their new line of accusations, which is a very different line of accusations than the ones that they've already made. But for that, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com and sign up. $8 a month gets you a subscription to dailywire.com. That means that you get the rest of this show live. It means that you can be part of the mailbag, which we'll be doing tomorrow. Uh, We are now five days a week, this show. Yay. Uh, Also means you get Clavin's show live. You get to be part of Clavin's mailbag. Plus, it means that uh, we've got all sorts of great benefits that are coming for members that are going to be rolled out in the next couple of months. So stick around for that. If you're an annual subscriber, you get a signed copy of this very book, Say It So. It's a book about baseball and me and my dad. There it is. You know, there's my pops and there's me. Uh, And you can get a free signed copy of Say It So right now. It's available at Amazon for sale, but you can get a free and signed right now when you become an annual subscriber. So go over to dailywire.com and sign up as an annual subscriber. Or if you just want to listen to the show later, Go over to iTunes and become a subscriber over there. Uh, And make sure you leave a review. We always appreciate it. We are the largest conservative podcast in the nation. Alrighty, so the new line of attack from the left is that President Trump may not have colluded with Russia. We may, it turns out we may not have any evidence that Trump colluded with Russia, but he was acting real suspicious, wasn't he? And that is obstruction of justice. So Jeffrey Tubin. Uh, of the, the CNN legal analyst was making this case that, that Trump going to Comey and allegedly telling him, according to Comey, that he wanted him, uh, he hoped he would see his way clear to dropping the Flynn investigation. That's obstruction of justice. It's obstruction of justice. Here's Tubin saying that. There is a criminal investigation going on of one of the president's top associates, his former national security advisor, one of the most ha- handful of most important people in the, in the government. He gets fired. He's under criminal investigation. And the president brings in the FBI director and says, please stop your investigation. If that is an obstruction of justice, I don't know what is. Okay, if that is an obstruction of justice, I don't know what is. So let me point a couple of things out. One, Comey also said that Loretta Lynch pressured him to downplay the Clinton investigation. If that's not obstruction of justice, then how is this obstruction of justice? And this demonstrates the hypocrisy on both sides. Again, We on the right were very angry when Loretta Lynch was pressuring James Comey to do certain things, when Loretta Lynch was interfering with the investigation. We said it's inappropriate for her to even be on a plane with Bill Clinton talking about the investigation, let alone pressuring James Comey to change the name of the investigation from investigation to matter. Right? Of course we're angry about that because it's totally inappropriate. Trump does the same thing to Comey with regard to Flynn, and suddenly we're all up in arms. No, 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 it's a a big nothing. Now, is it obstruction of justice? No, it's not obstruction of justice. Right? Pressure is not necessarily obstruction of justice. This is a point that Alan Dershowitz made the other night. Here's, here's Professor Dershowitz from Harvard Law School. I had him for a class. Here he is explaining that this isn't actually obstruction of justice. The president could have told Comey, you are commanded, directed to drop the prosecution against Flynn. The president has the right to do that. 
Comey acknowledges that. He says in the statement that historically, historically, presidents have done that to the Justice Department. But in the last few years, we've had a tradition of separation. But that tradition doesn't create crime. Okay, so what he's saying here is technically true from a legal standpoint. Now, it is important to mention here that when everybody talks about it's an impeachable offense, an impeachable offense, there is no such thing as an impeachable offense. Okay, there are only offenses that the Senate that the House chooses to impeach upon and the Senate chooses to convict upon. You don't actually even have to have committed a crime to be impeached. So whenever the left says, oh, he's done something impeachable, and the right says, it's not impeachable, he didn't obstruct justice. That's not how it works, Okay. It's a totally subjective thing, whether somebody ought to be impeached or not. But I don't think it's really subjective that Trump was clearly attempting to put some sort of pressure on Comey to kill the Flynn criminal investigation. Is that a good thing? No, it's really not a good thing. Is it impeachable? I don't really think that it's impeachable per se, although there's a case. Uh, but it, I, again, I think that it's the, the difference is not between the whether it's impeachable or not for Trump to say to Comey, I hope that you drop the Flynn investigation, or whether that's pressure or not, whether it's obstruction or not. The real distinction here is that the left's big claim before all of this, and now they're pivoting now. It's a big pivot. Okay, the left's big claim, remember, never forget this, the left's big claim was that Trump worked for Vladimir Putin in order to, sub in order to subvert the American election cycle, and then he fired James Comey to cut it off and to, and to destroy the investigation. Not a shred of evidence for any of that. Not a shred of evidence for any of that. I think that Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, who I'm generally not a fan of, I think he basically got this right. He said that Trump's loyalty oath remarks to Comey, his talk about the Flynn investigation, not appropriate, but not what Democrats are claiming it is either. Is it appropriate for the president to ask for a question of loyalty for the FBI director? Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, I don't think that is. Uh, I think Director Comey will probably get a lot of questions about that tomorrow would be my guess. Um, but I don't think that that's new. I think that that's already been reported on. OK, and, and I think that Ryan is pretty much right about this. Again, the point here, the point here, and it's pretty amazing is that the Democrats were the ones who let Trump off the hook. Imagine if the Democrats had come into office and instead, and Trump comes into office, and instead of them painting Trump as some big Russian baddie who goes in the back room and calls Vladimir Putin from a smoke-filled office and, and asks Vladimir, what can I do for you today? You know, well, if, they, if they hadn't done that, imagine they just come into office and said, listen, this Trump guy, he's a dope. And not only is he a dope, he's going to run roughshod over constitutional norms in order to protect his friends. He's going to run this administration like a mafia, family, closely held business. And he's going to pressure people. And he's going to try and protect his allies because he can. And then this had come out. Well, then they'd have a pretty strong case, wouldn't they? Or at least a much better case. But because they oversold this, because they had to exonerate Hillary Clinton, because they felt the necessity to get over their skis about what happened in the 2016 election cycle, instead, by comparison, everything we're talking about here looks like small potatoes. You know, Trump saying to Comey some stuff, and then Trump getting Comey getting pissed, but not being pissed enough to actually reveal it publicly or quit. See, this is the big question here also. If Comey felt like Trump was trying to obstruct justice, why not quit? I'm getting very sick of the James Comey show, the I'm the last honest man in Washington. Well, if you're the last man, honest man in Washington, wouldn't you have an obligation to quit if you thought, or, or at least speak publicly, if you thought the president of the United States was attempting to impact an ongoing federal investigation? Wouldn't you have an obligation to do something about that? The whole thing doesn't wash completely. Do I think Trump acted well here? No, I think Trump acted like a buffoon. But I don't think that's any great shakes, and I don't think that's impeachable either, that he acted like a buffoon. I also don't think it's impeachable that he acts like this is a family business and, run rough sh and runs roughshod over norms. Again, the investigations are ongoing. He has not been successful in halting or holding up any investigation at any time. And in fact, he's told Comey he wanted the investigation into the campaign associates in Russia to continue. 
So none of this washes the way that Democrats are, are pushing to make it wash, the way the media are pushing to make it wash. So the Democrats and the media are going to shift. Instead, they're going to focus in on the fact that Comey said that Trump was dishonest. And then they're going to focus in on the fact that, that Trump said to Comey some things that could be construed as pressuring him to drop investigations, even though, as Dershowitz says, that's not actually illegal. And on the right, I think we would be wise to recognize that how Trump acted here is not appropriate for the president of the United States. If Barack Obama had done the same thing, if he had called Loretta Lynch in on the carpet, if he had called Comey in on the carpet in 2016 and said, listen, if you could see your way clear, I really hope you drop this whole Hillary investigation thing. You know, she's my former secretary of state. She's a good person. I would, if you, I would hope that you would drop this. Do you think that we would have lost our minds? Of course we would have lost our minds. Is this how a president is supposed to act? Of course it's not how a president is supposed to act. But again, for the last time, the Democrats' narrative was not that Trump is acting in ways presidents are not supposed to act. Their narrative was that he was a Manchurian candidate sent by Vladimir Putin to, subdue, to subvert the election of Hillary Clinton. He succeeded, and then he fired everybody who could expose that. That's what the, that's, that's what the, the testimony simply does not reveal and, in fact, destroys. Okay, so before we go any further, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Upside.com. So... Upside bundles your flights and hotels together for one low price. Bundling saves you on money. It, sa it makes sure that, that you can get the lowest possible price. If you are a business traveler, then Upside.com is the best thing for you. You get that hype flight and hotel bundle, lowest possible price, but not just lowest possible price for you and your company. You also get an Amazon gift card, a free Amazon gift card. If you're a frequent business traveler, there's no better way to earn miles. There's no better way to get cheap travel and inexpensive travel and there's no better way to get Amazon gift cards. Super cool. Use my name, Ben, right now at Upside.com. You are guaranteed to get at least a $200 Amazon gift card for your first trip. My name, Ben, gets you at least a $200 Amazon gift card for free. How can you not do that? It's a no-brainer. Say big on travel. I travel business all the time. We use Upside.com here at the office. I love it. Upside.com, minimum purchase required. See the site for complete details. Again, it's that bundling that makes it happen. Also, the site's really cool. They allow you to check out if you flew into a different airport or if you flew at a different time or used a different hotel, what would the prices look like? And they show you all the various options so you can choose the one that best fits your budget. And then, of course, you get that gift card back. So while your company is saving money, you're actually getting a gift card, which is pretty awesome. Okay, so I want to get to some stuff I like and then some things I hate. And then, because it's a Thursday and we're now doing five days a week, I have a new segment that I want to introduce. It is called Big Concepts. Yay, Big Concepts. We're going to go through a big concept and you will learn something. Okay, so let's do some things I like. The first thing that I like uh, is there's this series that I've been watching on Amazon um, with uh, the, the, the actor's name is Titus Welliver. He was in Lost. You'll recognize him as the man in black from Lost. Really, really good actor. Uh, very subtle. And basically the entire cast from The Wire is now here for, is now here for Bosch. It's basically a crime drama. Bosch is the central character. He's this, he's a kind of do-gooding, uh, he would almost be a, a, a stereotypical cop character on TV, except that Titus Welliver is a really good actor. So he's the, he's the do-gooding cop who's hemmed in by the system and investigating interesting crimes while bending the rules every so often. Anyway, here is, uh, here's a little bit of the preview for season one of Bosch. Every murder is the tale of a city. Well, I don't believe there's a better world than this one. This is the police. And if this is the only one we got, how about I buy you a drink? Call me. I know that luck. Yeah, if anyone would. Feels like we're putting band-aids on bullet holes. Hands up! There's another body. If I don't take you, you'll never know. I want you in charge of this field trip. What went wrong out there? Everything. Hey, go! We need an airship now! 
You break the rules, disobey orders. I think I'm coming apart. Focus, detective. Your future is on the line. Okay, so obviously Bosch is a cop who won't play by the rules, but it's a really good series. Uh, and if you miss all the actors from The Wire, they're pretty much all in this series. Okay, other things that I like. So Jerry Seinfeld, I just thought this was hilarious. Apparently Jerry Seinfeld was doing an interview and the pop star Keisha came up to him for a hug. And you'll see Jerry Seinfeld does not react well. It's hard to just sleep when you're tired because people are tired most of the time. Hi, Gosh, I love you so much. Oh, thanks. Can I give you a hug? No, thanks. Please? No, thanks. A little one. Yeah, no, thanks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and the internet goes nuts over that because he stiffs Keisha. Uh, pretty amazing stuff there from Jerry Seinfeld, so thanks for that. Okay, time for a quick thing I hate and then I want to get to a big concept. So things I hate, let's do it. So Bernie Sanders uh, is a left-wing kook. One of the ways that you can tell the media bias is not just by looking at the American scene, it's by looking at the foreign scene. When you look at the French election, the media spends an inordinate amount of time talking about how awful and evil Marine Le Pen was because she was this right-wing kook who was associated with anti-Semitism, supposedly. They've spent no time talking about Jeremy Corbyn, who is a left-wing kook who is openly anti-Semitic. He says anti-Semitic things on a routine basis. He associates with anti-Semites. He sides with terrorists. He may win the British election, which is being overshadowed by the Comey thing, but I believe the British election is actually happening today. Bernie Sanders is a Jeremy Corbyn type, and we've ignored this for years about Bernie Sanders, that he's not just kooky when it comes to domestic economic policy, but on foreign policy, he stands up for all of the worst people on earth. He did that yesterday on the floor of the Senate. Here he was talking about Iran. Iran was the, uh, was the victim of an ISIS terror attack, and terror attacks are bad, but Iran is also a terrorist country, and so basically you have two terrorist entities duking it out. Bernie Sanders says because Iran was hit by a terror attack, we should kill the sanctions on them. I have serious concerns about the sanctions on Iran contained in this bill. As we have heard from former Obama administration officials, including Secretary Kerry and Ambassador Sherman, these measures could undermine the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the very important nuclear agreement signed in 2015 between the United States, our P5 Plus partners, and Iran. But above and beyond that, let us be aware and cognizant that earlier today, the people of Iran suffered a horrific terror attack in their capital, Tehran, in which 12 people were killed and many more were injured. The Islamic State has claimed credit for this attack. Okay, basically, Bernie Sanders is using the fact there was a terrorist attack in Iran to stump for his preferred policy, which is that he loves Iran. Uh, and it is worthwhile noting that the left has routinely sided with Islamic terror against the state of Israel. Again, that's why they backed the Palestinians. And they've routinely sided with the, the, the Iranian Islamic Republic against the West. And, and Bernie Sanders is just another indicator of that. Okay, so before we run out of time here, I want to do a new segment. It is called Big Concepts. In Big Concepts, every week we're going to take a big concept that you may have heard about, and we're going to break it down and explain why it's important. So today we're going to talk about judicial review. Judicial review is the idea that the Supreme Court, that the federal courts, have the capacity to review an act of the legislature and determine that it is not in compliance with the Constitution and thereby strike it down and say that it is not enforceable and that it is void. This is not in the Constitution. Article 3 of the Constitution, which concerns the courts, does not say anything about the federal courts, particularly the Supreme Court, having the, the ability to strike down a piece of legislation in the name of the Constitution. The decision in which the court 
arrogated to itself that responsibility was a decision called Marbury versus Madison. I've talked briefly on the show before about Marbury versus Madison, but I've never really explained why I think it was wrongly decided. So here is the background to Marbury versus Madison, decided in 1803. John Adams is the president in 1800. He's leaving office in 1801. Just before he leaves, he, his secretary of state is a, a guy named John Marshall. John Marshall ends up being the Supreme Court justice who decides Marbury versus Madison. So right before he leaves, President Adams appoints a bunch of justices of the peace and commissions for the post are made out in Marshall's office. Four of them were not delivered by the time Adams leaves office and Jefferson takes over. Jefferson then says to his new secretary of state, James Madison, hold these things up. I don't like these justices of the peace. We're not delivering these. So there are a bunch of questions that Marbury versus Madison decides. First of all, good notion that Marshall should have recused himself. He was directly involved with this case, right? He was directly in his office. The writs were signed that handed over these posts to the people that Adams had appointed in his office. He probably should have recused himself. But then he takes up the decision and he says, well, once these people have been told, once they've been appointed, then the, the delivery of their appointment does not mean, uh, is, not, uh, is not required for them to have been appointed to the posts. So it's, it's not right for Jefferson not to deliver these things. They're already appointed to the post. The delivery doesn't matter. Okay. That in and of itself would have been okay, but then he goes further and he starts looking at the 1789 Judiciary Act, which restricts certain parts of the judiciary and talks about what the judiciary can and cannot do. And what he finally decides, to make a, a longer story short, what he finally decides is that it is the Supreme Court that gets to decide what is constitutional and what is not. There is nothing in the Constitution that says the Supreme Court gets to do this. First of all, there's a good notion that even if in Article 3 it said that the Supreme Court gets to decide whether something is constitutional or not, it wouldn't go to the substance of the law. In other words, they couldn't decide whether a law was constitutional or not. They could just say this law was not passed legally. You didn't follow the procedures laid out in the Constitution, so you have to go back and do it again. But there's nothing in Article 3 that says we don't like this law, so we're striking it down. Alexander Bickle of Yale is not a conservative. He wrote back in 1962, quote, Marshall had already begged the question-in-chief, which was not whether an act repugnant to the Constitution could stand, but who should be empowered to decide that the act itself is repugnant? A statute's repugnancy to the Constitution is, in most instances, not self-evident. It is rather an issue of policy someone must decide. So imagine for a second that the Supreme Court weren't the quote-unquote final arbiter of the Constitution. Right? Justice Jackson said, we are not final because we are infallible. We are infallible because we are final. Imagine for a second that we actually obeyed the Constitution and the Supreme Court was not the final authority on the Constitution. What would happen if Congress passed some unconstitutional law and the Supreme Court weren't there to strike it down? Well, then the voters would get to speak. But what happens when the Supreme Court decides that something is unconstitutional when it's actually constitutional, like, say, Trump's executive order on immigration? Well, then there's no way for us to rectify that because the Supreme Court has the quote-unquote final word. This is not something the majority of founders actually thought was a good thing. Even John Marshall said that we have to be very careful how we use judicial review. But when you've, once you've created the sort of judicial review, it's very hard to keep achieved. Judges tend to take advantage of the power that they've been given. Jefferson hated this. Jefferson said, quote, You seem to consider the judges as ultimate arbiters of all constitutional questions, a very dangerous doctrine indeed, and one which would place us under the despotism of an oligarchy. The Constitution has erected no such single tribunal. And that seems to me correct. All of the talk about judicial review being in just a part and parcel of the American system, it's actually unique to the American system. It doesn't exist in most other constitutional systems, even ones with a written constitution. And so we should be very careful about how it is wielded. And we should also consider whether, in fact, it is time to restore boundaries to the jurisdiction, the subject matter jurisdiction of the Supreme Court of the United States and restrict them back to what they originally were, which was a place where they were supposed to be able to adjudicate 
procedure, but not substance, because it is dangerous to have nine unelected guys sitting there determining what the Constitution says and does not say, because we can have honest debates about all of these things, and the Supreme Court is wrong at least as often as it is right on these sorts of matters. Okay, so we'll be back tomorrow to rehash the entirety of the Comey testimony, because we're now a -a five-day-a-week show. Yay. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.